Welcome to Mythic, a podcast where we explore meaningful living through the power of myth. I'm your host, Boston Blake. Hello, and welcome to Mythic. This episode of Mythic is a Wonder Woman love fest, because my guest today is one of the greatest artists ever to draw Wonder Woman, Nicola Scott. This year saw the release of Wonder Woman Historia the Amazons from DC Comics. It's a history of the Amazons about their time before they arrived on Themyscira, or Paradise Island. It was written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, and last week, the three-issue series has been collected as a hardcover. It is unquestionably Nicola Scott's best work to date, and it's the best comic I've ever read, hands down. In the last third of this episode, Nicola and I dissect scenes and explore mythic themes from the book. That part is loaded with spoilers, so heads up. But before we get to that point, Nicola shares her own origin story, which is amazing, how she rose from a Wonder Woman and mythology fan who had never read a comic book to eventually teaming up with Greg Rucka to celebrate Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary with Wonder Woman Rebirth. She also shares stories from the time that Wonder Woman was a real-world honorary ambassador to the United Nations. I've written a little bit about that myself, and it's an interesting story. Nicola did the artwork for that campaign, and her frontline insights are really interesting. Ready to dive in? Let's go. Nicholas Scott, thank you so much for being on the Mythic Podcast. I am delighted to have you. I am admittedly fanboying a little bit right now. You drew the third issue of Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons, that has come out, and it is absolutely breathtaking. I know you're seeing the reviews that are singing your praises, and it's it really is a masterwork. And it uses mythology in such beautiful and interesting ways. And I am I'm so excited to discuss myth and comics with you today. Can we start with your origin story? Oh, gosh. My origin story in general is very related to Wonder Woman and not just comics specific. She seeped into my DNA when I was young, right at that sort of early becoming a person point. I think I was about four when the Linda Carter TV series started playing out on television here. And it just hit me in a way that nothing previously had seeped into my psyche. She was my introduction to superheroes. She was my introduction to the idea of mythology, even though the TV show doesn't really go into it terribly much. It's laid a little bit of groundwork for me so that I did find myself, along with my discovery of superheroes, found myself sort of also discovering the ancient Greek tales. And that opened up a new world for me. And in my early teen years, I think I was in year seven, when I did a school paper on witches. That evolved my sense of mythology and magic and how all of these things related and I think I understood that there were there was a bit of a crossover I don't know that I really fully played with the idea in my head but this idea of oracles and 
and how they related to a woman with a crystal bowl or someone looking into tea leaves or all of those things. They all felt a little similar to me. And as I learned more of this stuff, I started to realize how much of it related to Wonder Woman in my own personal way. I wasn't really a comic book reader as a kid, but there was this point where I think I was in my late teens and I had a weekend job and one of the guys that I worked with, he was a big comic fan. Hold up, you had a weekend job? Weekend. A weekend job. Weekend. I wish it was a weekend weekend job, (laughs) but no. I need more context. Got it. it. (laughs) Oh my God. No, I wish there was one of those jobs for me in my past. He was a big comic book fan and he introduced me to what was happening in that mid to late 80s era, the post-crisis era. And I got to read George Perez's Wonder Woman run and that solidified the connection of mythology and Wonder Woman together for me. That was me realizing that it wasn't just me connecting some dots, that it was built into the character. And this was the first retelling that was really diving into that and celebrating it. And from somewhere in there, whenever I would draw Wonder Woman for myself, because I still didn't see myself as a comic book artist, but I was always drawing Wonder Woman as I grew up and always drawing superheroes. But from that point on, when I was drawing Wonder Woman, I draw a little circle around the star on her tiara. So it was like a pentagram. Oh, that is too cool. Yeah, I thought, because I knew a pentagram was a protection spell, and I just thought, I'm just going to do that. So for, like, up until I started at DC Comics, every time I drew Wonder Woman, she had a circle around her star. And and I wasn't able to continue that once I started at the company, and I did play with the idea of reintroducing it at some point. But by the time I was actually getting the chance to do my version of Wonder Woman, we'd already started, Greg Rucker and I had already started Black Magic. And I didn't want to be that overt with the same writer-artist team. I'd already made Rowan purposefully look quite a lot like Diana, or really quite a lot like Linda Carter. I wondered about that. She oh, 100%. From the very beginning, I, when I was designing Rowan, I was thinking, I, want, I have to draw this face all day all day, every day for as long as the series runs, what do I want her to look like? And somewhere I was just like, I wish I could just draw as Linda Carter. And I was like, I'm totally going to draw as Linda Carter because Linda's got those really beautiful, soulful eyes. Mm-hmm. I was like, that'd be perfect. I just need to jazz her up a bit. Oh, it is so cool to hear that through line that the Chiara and that Linda Carter has been cast as Rowan in these in the Black Magic comics. That's, in my head, absolutely. Makes perfect sense. It, and if I, so if we back up a moment, yeah, I'm intrigued because, first of all, I'm astonished at how parallel our journey is with Wonder Woman. I was about the same age, similar experience with George Perez and seeing, oh, this is a mythological world that she inhabits. This is her religion, her spirituality, her roots. She's a product mm. of the gods in this way. As you were really weaving these things together, like how, what was the importance of the connection between mythology and Wonder Woman for you? I think it just, it elevated her away from the Superman. Superman is in himself the archetype of a superhero. Hmm. And there's something really profound about his story. 
the same goes with Batman. And I feel like they they have had their stories, particularly their origin stories, re-examined over and over again with people adding not necessarily different story beats, but certainly flavour and perspective and context that have enriched those stories. And I always felt like Wonder Woman's story just never really got that kind of constant re-examination. Mm-hmm. And so for me, understanding those connections really cemented her as something very different to them, that she wasn't just a female Superman and she wasn't just a DC Captain America, that she was this wholly unique person. And the fact of her Amazon origin and the mythology behind Even back then, the idea of the concept of how the DC Amazons were created and the hints of Amazons within the Odyssey and the Iliad, those things really felt like a really expansive world building that she might be connected in some of these ways. And because they're magic related and because they're historically related, it really enriched my sense of her. And coming from a family which is reasonably large and almost entirely female, Hmm. added to my sense of relating to this character. I'm the youngest of three girls and we grew up with our cousins who are also three girls and it's our mothers who are connected and really the only men in the family that I, we didn't spend time with like my father's, side of the family or my cousin's dad's side of the family it was all this maternal mix of like loud bossy as I saw powerful women being the youngest they all seem really powerful and impressive to me you and grew so up I in an Amazon nation 100% and as Diana is the child of that nation and I was by far the youngest like my five sisters and cousins there's about four years in between the five of them age bracket wise and then there's six years until me so I'm quite a bit younger than the others and so I got to grow up being their toy essentially (laughs) their sidekick and their toy I got to be that the baby in the world of all these women Mm. and that helped me relate to Diana as well so there were all of these things that just solidified and added so much flavor to my understanding of who this character is. One way I work with mythology in my coaching practice is I operate under the assumption that we're all living out a myth. The reason these stories transcend generations and centuries and millennia is because we're living the same stories over and over again in a million different Mm -hmm. shapes, an infinite number of different shapes. And what you're describing, that something about your life is resonance with Wonder Woman. And if you, whether you're, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's destiny or resonance or just something that draws you forward, you became one of the number of of people who have drawn Wonder Woman in the main title Mm -hmm. is what probably under 50 in oh ever ever in 80 years i don't know the main on the main title thought about it like that yeah maybe 
maybe definitely under a hundred. Yeah. And you have, so of all the people and all the jobs on the planet, you found this one. one people. And that it's something, and your love of Diana is so clear in your work. And so what, so how did you get there? How did you thread that needle from, I love Wonder Woman comics, mythology is really cool, and I want to draw Wonder Woman? Well, I pursued it, but it, it, there was a delay in my pursuit of it. Like I said, I didn't grow up with comic books, but I did grow up with superheroes because in the 70s, there were a lot of superhero either reruns or cartoons or TV shows or movies happening. And a lot of them were DC related. So Linda Carter was my first, but it opened the door to me discovering like the Batman reruns, the Superman 50s TV show reruns. There was a 60s Superman cartoon. There was the Super Friends, which was invaluable because it taught me that these characters knew each other that Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Robin and all these characters that they related to each other in one way or another. And that was very interesting to me. But there are also things like the Shazam and Isis Hour, Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, all of these things that just really solidified my love of superheroes. But I was also always deeply, all of the superheroines were the ones that I absolutely deeply related to. Like Batman and Robin were great fun. But an episode with Catwoman in was so much better. As soon as Batgirl started, I know the show now as an adult, it isn't quite as good. It isn't quite as exciting. But her arrival for me as a kid was mind-splitting. That outfit was to die for. Her little Batgirl closet with the spinning wall was like blowing my mind. (laughs) It was like, how do I get that in my life? (laughs) I was making out of cardboard, like Batgirl secret closet style things with spinning walls out of cardboard for my dolls. Just absolutely living for it. And so I drew superheroes a lot, but I didn't really connect with comic books because even when I would see them on the newsstands, this is pre-specialty stores when I was little, when I'd see them on the newsstands, I would more likely see like a Marvel hulk or thor or something like that and it would be very kirby-esque art and that all looked very foreign to me very brutal very masculine very unappealing to my young and uneducated eyes but on the very rare occasion i would see like superman or wonder woman on the cover or i I remember seeing a justice league comic and thinking Justice League, that's like the Super Friends, weren't they called the Super Friends who were the Justice League? And flipping through and seeing Green Arrow and Black Canary and thinking, who the fuck are these people? I don't mm-hmm. know who these people are. And so I just, it didn't feel like it was for me. And even when I would see Wonder Woman in there, and I remember once seeing a Wonder Woman comic and flipping through it, and there was some Amazon stuff in there, which was the most interesting to me, but because it didn't feel like the TV show and it didn't look like the TV show and the costume wasn't as precious about the details as I was about the TV show detail. I didn't understand that the comics were the source material. Mm -hmm. It was just another medium in which this character that I had this affinity for was taking place. And so it just wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until those late 80s comics that I got to read through that I felt like, oh, this George Perez story this is for me and I did read all of that and then when he left I read a little bit of when Jill Thompson took over on the art 
And I think I read a little bit beyond that, but then I just opted out. I was just, mm-hmm. oh, it's, it's feeling very superhero-y now. It's blending into the world that's full of all these characters that I don't know. I'm less interested than I had been. And so I just stopped reading. You're speaking to that I think is really interesting because Wonder Woman, I don't know if this is true of all superheroes, but Wonder Woman seems to work best when she is not part of the greater DCU, in my mm. humble but accurate opinion. the That era, that George Perez era, and I'm going to summarize here for some people who may not be reading comics, George Perez reinvented Wonder Woman after, after she was killed in the Crisis on Infinite Earths, this DC-wide reboot that happened in the mid-80s. And when... George Perez, who we who sadly passed away last year, retooled Wonder Woman. He really rooted her in classical mythology. The original stories from the 1940s, Aphrodite and Athena were the Amazon religion, but now you had Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite and the whole pantheon. Mm. And Wonder Woman was steeped in this Greek mythological world. And the and the other, the super friends were nowhere to be seen. She had her own yeah. supporting cast. She was part of a family system in the United States and she had her sister Amazons back home. And it was a really unique time. So now with that context, so something in that story spoke to you. And I, this is another place that I relate. I remember seeing the DC, the Wonder Woman number one on the spindle rack. And my, the first time I had been to a proper comic shop and I, and I, Wonder Woman number one, what's happening? How can it be starting over? And I remember there was no magic lasso in the first issue. And I was mm. ridiculously upset. There was, I was like, whatever, 10, there needs to be a magic lasso. And I was worried they weren't going to introduce it. But I remember I that was holy scripture for me. I read those comics mm. with this intensity. And I'm wondering what it was that captured you to dive in and then to leave when it went superhero Right. The first issue of that run that I saw, because I just was, I think I was just having lunch with this guy and a few other people, but he was pulling out his comics that he'd just picked up that morning. And the first issue that I saw of that run, I think it was issue seven. It was the aftermath of her defeating Ares mm-hmm. and it started with her in a very damaged situation and the healing waters of Themyscira are doing their magic on her and the cover of that issue is Diana in her Wonder Woman suit in this mythical bubble of water all of this water surrounded by the full pantheon of the gods on this very Escher-like Olympus mm-hmm. and just seeing all of these characters with Wonder Woman in the middle was just like, what the fuck is happening here? <laughs> it was so much. It was so beyond any version of Wonder Woman that I had seen before. But because it was surrounded by all of these characters that I also knew, I just hadn't put together that all of these characters were relevant somewhere or another, could be relevant. Mm. And there they all were. And I was like, what is happening? How is this happening? And he was like, oh, this is the aftermath of the first story. And I'm like, I need to track down that first story. And so I (laughs) did 
slowly but surely find the back issues because I didn't know how to find back issues, but it, it took me a little bit, but I found the issues. And then I started buying it monthly and it was that mythology. It was that really non-superhero storytelling. Her life in America was very non-superhero. The idea of Steve and Edda being in the story was really fascinating to me because I remembered Edda from the first season of the TV show. Mm-hmm. And just how I, I did feel that there was a difference whenever Wonder Woman was introduced to other superheroes. Like there was a particular issue where she's meeting everybody. And it's that didn't feel right that she should be the new girl in town when there's all of these characters because mm-hmm. she feels too deeply unique and original that she should have been around long before all of these other people who were inspired by her. Mm-hmm. And from that moment, I knew intrinsically this is an immortal character. Why hasn't her story started so much earlier? She could have been Wonder Womaning at the Trojan War. I, I came up with this origin story in my head that may be the reason why the Amazons had left the mainland and gone to the island was how gross and brutal the Trojan War was and how that had affected them. And Mm. that was that Diana competing in the contest to represent the Amazons as part of her traditional origin story was her representing the Amazons to to participate in the Trojan War. Mm. and that it was the violence and brutality of that just made the Amazons go, oh, fuck all you guys. We need to get out of here. Sorry, I keep swearing a lot. I'm Australian. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Ring it. Oh, absolutely. I'm oddly not so far, but it's normal for (laughs) a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so that, that to me felt like a really plausible origin. I liked the idea that she was probably thousands of years old. I liked the idea that she might have come out for World War II, like her original origin, that might have been her first venture back into the outside world mm-hmm. and participated in the war, helped win the war. And then once again, when it went nuclear right at the end of the war, was like, oh, God, you people are awful. I just yeah, helped, I'm out of here. I helped this and now I need to get out of here again because I just don't know how to deal with this. There's something interesting because Wonder Woman is this, I mean, she's 80 years old. She's been, she mm. has been around since World War II. And there was this emergence. She pop, she pops into the scene at this moment in world history, but in American history, where there's all of this agitation and there's this moment where the role of women needs to change for yeah. global and national interests. And I maintain that Wonder Woman only worked because or was only able to grow as famous as she was she outsold superman because america needed her like they needed her juice so that women 100 had a model we can leave our island home to go into the workforce and we can go like this is our role in the war and then the men come back they go back to their jobs most women also go back into the home and we get that creepy 1950s Stepford Wives thing. But then you fast forward about 40 years and we get to the 1970s. And once again, women are exploding. Another generation of women is exploding in their quest for liberation and freedom. Mm. 
Wonder Woman is there and immediately jumps to the front of the pack with Linda Carter. And again, she's this icon for a movement. Well, even and- pre that with Gloria Steinem putting Wonder Woman on the cover of issue one of Ms. Magazine. Yeah. At a time when Wonder Woman had been completely depowered, wasn't in costume. She was like a generic ninja lady who which owned is, a boutique it was weird just oh god save us all you know i'm sure it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. but it didn't at all speak to the character it was just somebody else mm-hmm. and it was under the pressure from gloria steinem wanting to put wonder woman back on the cover that the comics repowered her and put her back in the outfit and on the power of that that the linda carter series was greenlit amazing yeah. and then wonder woman enjoys three years of massive popularity again the 80s happen massive consumerism wonder woman once again along with superheroes in general like that Mm. the interest goes away and then you fast forward again so when i started doing my more intense wonder woman work in 2011 nobody knew or cared anything about wonder woman 100 percent nothing i did a i did a panel at san diego comic-con in two 2016 and it was the 75th anniversary of the character mm-hmm. it was the 75th anniversary panel and I had been asked to do it like two days earlier because at the time I was working on the Wonder Woman year one series with Greg Racker and as a female creator working on the character in that anniversary year it felt really appropriate and then I was told like the day before so you're going to be doing the panel with Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Blow my mind. And one of the things that Patty and I discussed on the panel, I brought it up as a feeling that I had been having, that Patty was like, yes, I'm recognizing that as well, is that only a couple of years earlier, Wonder Woman had felt like this incredibly old fashioned, irrelevant character that I still loved, but the world just had moved on from that she just wasn't there anymore but I think part of that building momentum of the re-commercialization of superheroes and this concept that Wonder Woman was coming to the cinema was starting to remind people that Wonder Woman's the origin point she's like the epicenter of you know superheroines but also that she is This character that, apart from the original suffragette movement, she has been one of the primary representatives of every wave of feminism since. Mm -hmm. That's World War II wave of feminism, that second wave 70s feminism. And here we were on our third wave of feminism that had really already kicked into gear Mm -hmm. slowly but surely with the internet and social media galvanising women's speech and women's groups and women's voices Mm -hmm. and absolutely Wonder Woman should be representing us because she stands for all of those things Mm -hmm. and so I brought this up in the panel and Patty was like absolutely and we felt like we were riding this wave of our favorite character rising to the top again and Mm -hmm. I feel the release of that first Wonder Woman movie was where it crescendoed she was suddenly the whole world was like, oh my God, that's right. That character is amazing. And this is why. Yes. And that moment, that get that galvanizing moment. So in, in the United States, Voldemort is 
elected president, we were ready for the year of women. We all thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. There was this movement of enthusiasm around this rise in power of women. And then we get this. Everything just goes batshit crazy and people are traumatized and confused. And I remember when Wonder Woman came out, it was their opening night, of course. Yes, same. Hey, where we, else would oh, you were you be? there at the premiere? I was at the oh, premiere. Oh, God, no. No, oh, oh, I was not at the premiere. I, I don't have I that kind of access. I went to opening night as well, but because I was in the States for the premiere, so I got to go to opening, because I wanted to see it again straight away. The, and Yeah, you go. Oh, just, the, just when so no, the no man's land scene happens, the audience loses their minds. Mm. I'm sobbing like a child. I look around a little embarrassed. Everyone else is too something happened and it became this catharsis. I watched that movie a dozen times in the theater. And so Wonder Woman, this time is not just the wave of women, but the resistance. This is when hashtag me too comes in. This is, oh, and I want to make a side trip here because you did artwork for one of the most amazing things that never happened, which is Wonder Woman as the honorary ambassador to the United Nations. Yeah. And that art was so beautiful. Thank you. And I was, it made such sense. What a perfect representative for the empowerment of women and girls around the world. Mm. And then it went sideways because self-proclaimed, self-described feminists inside the UN didn't like her costume. Is that... What happened? From what I understood and from the perspective that I have now, it feels like it was a propaganda against the idea of having a representative for women and girls. Oh, It was a bit broader than that because that sh- shut the whole program down. It wasn't as though they replaced Wonder Woman with somebody else. Mm. The whole program disappeared, which was a no deep shit. shame, which was oh. a deep shame. But the argument that they were using was Wonder Woman is an old-fashioned, irrelevant character who's deeply sexualized. And the reason their reasoning for how she was a sexualized character was using Linda Carter's 70s outfit, not her 1942-43 version of the outfit, but her 70s character outfit, which was a higher cut in the pants and a little lower cut in the breastplate. And obviously it's the 70s and... The 70s, even though it was a wave of feminism, this was the post-bra-burning moment. And feminism was incredibly glamorous. We had the Bionic Woman and Charlie's Angels as our heroes. Mm -hmm. They were all beautiful and glamorous. That was just what, that was part of the ingredients of feminine power. Was owning and wielding beauty and sexuality. 100%. That was part of the power. And the argument was just that she shouldn't be representing women i was like oh okay so if i reckon if the initiative had happened six months later when the movie had come out Mm -hmm. everybody would have been behind it Mm -hmm. because the girls i didn't get to go to the event at the un because i was deep in a project i was invited to go and i couldn't go because i had deadlines because comic books are unrelenting (laughs) so disappointing because i knew gal gadot was going to be there i knew patty jenkins was going to be there both of who I had just met at San Diego Comic-Con. But I also knew Linda Carter was going to be there and I'd never met Linda before. And so I, I 
watched the whole thing on the live stream and just seeing like these hundreds of girls, like school girls that had been invited to attend this event, all wearing these beautiful cardboard tiaras, Wonder Woman tiaras. And I was just, this is so special and moving because this is what it's for. And we had addressed when I was first approached to do this piece of key art, DC had asked me about it at that San Diego Comic-Con. They'd said, we want to have a meeting with you about a special project and gave me the idea of the pitch. And I just started talking back to them immediately in terms of why and how this is such a perfect union and fully understood. And I said, look, straight off the bat, I understand that we're going to have to de-Americanize her outfit quite a lot. What's been happening in the comic books a little bit anyway, but we need to step that up. Also, I understand that we probably need to cover her up a little bit more if she's going to be there for women and girls everywhere. She can't be so skin exposed. I was talking about putting her in a cape and a big swath across her decolletage, making her skirt quite a bit longer, like just subtle making Mm -hmm. sure she still represented herself, but Mm -hmm. that she was more universally accessible. And the first piece of art that I produced is almost exactly the piece of art that was used, but I gave her a really big smile, a really big toothy smile, because I thought that is her warmth and her openness. And what I hadn't considered, but that this is a UN note, not a DC note, you need to close her mouth with her smile because a big, broad, open smile is very American. And I was like, oh, my gosh, oh. I hadn't thought about it, that there's, that it's a bit too in your face. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that it's a little bit too Hollywood. And I was like, oh, gosh, okay, I hadn't even considered that a little more subtlety. So I needed to keep the smile in the eyes and keep the smile on the lips, but just close the mouth. And I just thought that was a really interesting note and a really interesting perspective that I deeply respected. So it's like, yep, absolutely. I fully understand now that it's been explained to me. So if we follow that thread into your work on Wonder Woman year one with Greg Mm -hmm. Rucka and up and Prior to year one, I can barely remember what was going on, but Wonder Woman had become this kind of dour character, like a lot of sadness, a lot of grief. She didn't smile much. And one of the things that I remember noting when Rebirth and year one came out was that the colors were so bright and there were a lot of smiles and it was this breath of fresh air. A bunch of comics friends super geeked out on this feeling like we saw our friend happy again, like this character that we love, who's very real to us. Wonder Woman fans are a little strange about Wonder Woman. She is like a friend. We have, we're protective of her. Yeah, very. And Rebirth, what, what was the conversation like as you were creating Wonder Woman, as you're reintroducing, and as you said, this was one of the first times her origin had been retooled in a very long time. Decades. Decades. What did you bring to it? What was important about it? How did you craft this? Luckily, Greg and I, Greg Rucker and I had been great mates for about 10 years by this point. And our friendship had happened because of Wonder Woman. He had been working on Wonder Woman in the early 2000s. 
And I was in the process of hustling into the industry and Wonder Woman being like my goalpost of where I was aiming myself. I had redrawn a few pages of one of his scripts to put in my portfolio and under encouragement from a mate of mine, I had put them online on a particular website that had I had been told was where a lot of industry professionals lurk. And I, with an introduction of saying that I'm a semi-professional working in this industry already, I understand there are some Wonder Woman fans here. I posted these Wonder Woman pages and within hours I had Gail Simone, Greg Rucker, Mark Andreco, and oh look a couple of other people sort of saying oh what wh- who are you where are you where, what's happening and almost immediately Greg was like I want you on this book with me mm-hmm. um, because you seem to understand the character and so he started hassling with DC and his editors And it didn't happen, but it started that conversation with Greg and I. And at one point, Greg and I were going to do a new arc of Queen and Country. He was like, this is how we'll get you into DC. Come and do an arc of this with me. And we were just in the process of gearing that up when I did get my job at DC doing Birds of Prey with Gail. But it initiated our friendship and it initiated this conversation about Diana that continued for a decade leading up to us actually getting this gig. And the gig itself came out of nowhere because up until Greg leaving the company full-time in the late 2000s, early teens, early 2010s, he was leaving the company because they'd reneged and burnt him on a bunch of Wonder Woman projects, all of which I knew about, all of which I might have been one of the artists in consideration for. But he was meant to do Wonder Woman All-Stars and then he was meant to do Wonder Woman Earth One and he was in the conversation for a lot of these Wonder Woman projects that ended up going to other people. And so he left the company burning all of his bridges happily on his way out the door (laughs) because of Wonder Woman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's a very grumpy person. And he would be burning all these bridges and that was it. He was done. But as... The 75th anniversary was approaching and this rebirth, rejig to not fix, but just bounce back after the new 52, which had been its own very particular agenda. It, they needed to reset back to not square one for everybody, but they needed to reset back to what everybody actually wanted from mm. their characters, not this really Elseworlds kind of take. On these characters which in some cases was very fun and in some cases was incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. so this rebirth idea is already on the table they're seeing that it's wonderful in 75th anniversary they can see that the movie is going to come out in a year's time and it is this opportunity to do something with the character they understand how important she is but they don't necessarily understand what to do with her and how to elevate her to give her the respect that they know she deserves and they kind of came knocking on Greg's door to say hi we know that you know what you're doing with this character and this is one of those opportunities where we really can't afford to fuck it up Mm. we can't afford to go in an interesting direction because we don't know what else to do Mm -hmm. which is essentially what had happened with all of these other projects it was like they would reject Greg's 
solid idea for a more interesting idea that took the character in another direction. And this was their opportunity to say, okay, we we can't afford another direction. We need a solid take. (laughs) And by this stage, I had also left DC and Greg and I were working on Black Magic. We'd finished our first arc and we were working into our second arc. And they approached him and said, "We, we can't fuck this up. We need you to do this, please. To which Greg set all these boundaries and rules for which they 100% agreed. And then when they felt like they were reasonably confident about his position, they were like, and do you think you can bring Nicola with you? And he was like, I'm sure I can. And so he called me immediately afterwards to say, hey, guess what, kid? We might be doing a Wonder Woman origin story at DC. To which I was like, I'm in the middle of a page of Black Magic. What are you talking about? And he was like, do you want to do this? I'm like, of course I fucking want to do this. Because my whole goal, even though Wonder Woman had guest starred in pretty much every book I had done to that point, because every writer that I worked with knew how much I loved the character and knew how much I was bringing to the character. So I had drawn her a lot. But, you know, that that question that everybody asks, what's your dream project? My dream project from the very beginning had been to draw Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. But the further my career got and the more opportunities I got to draw Wonder Woman, that answer got refined to, in a perfect world, I wish I could do an origin story of Wonder Woman with Greg Rucker. And suddenly there it was on the table. And so what we were then faced with, because I think we were offered this in, it was happening like around Easter. So let's say April. They were going to announce it in two weeks. And our first issue was going to be coming out in a few months. And it was like, holy shit, which is a lot, which Mm -hmm. is a lot to suddenly have to jump ship from what you are doing and turn something around. So suddenly Greg and I are in this position where we had a decade's worth of understanding between us. We knew that we were on the same page regarding her character and who she is and what she means and all of the broad amoebas things. But suddenly it was like, okay, it was the maths. It was like, okay, what we're going to do is an origin story for six issues. We only get 20 pages an issue. It's not 22 pages anymore. So this means we have 120 pages to tell this story. Mm -hmm. How do we want to do this? What is our breakdown? What are the things that are important to us? What do we need? All of these things, blah, 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 blah. And And, and what were some of those things? What was it you wanted to squeeze into those 120 pages? This is Wonder Woman. We want you to get who she is. What's important? We needed to bring, like you said before, we needed to bring the light back. She's meant to be an incredibly optimistic, warm and approachable character. So that was deeply important to us that she was accessible, Mm -hmm. which influenced what my art would be because I had gone from doing Earth 2 which was very gritty and testosterone and lots of shadows and lots of textural line work and for this I wanted to be cleaner and brighter and a lot less shadow and a lot just as open and bright as possible. Hmm. We also knew that we didn't want her to be stuck in this virginal loop because Mm. one of what I consider one of the mistakes of the Perez era was 
removing Steve Trevor as a love interest. I understand the reason for it because we didn't want to bog her down in a love interest story, but it did leave her without a suitable suitor because no one else was going to fill those, even though plenty of writers tried, there was just never anyone who was appropriate. It's Steve Trevor. It's Steve Trevor. It has to be. it, It has to be. It has to be. In the more recent versions of Steve Trevor, like the animated Wonder Woman movie, mm-hmm. Steve Trevor was a bit of a ladies' man, a bit of a dick. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed that take. I had also had the idea that he should be a bit of a, a superficially a bit of a dick mm-hmm. that doesn't quite know how to engage with his emotions, but suddenly he's around this woman who's like all exposed and understood emotions and he just can't help but be a better person around her. But in in talking with Greg, it was like, no, this is someone that has to be worthy of her. She has to not, he can't be a fixer-upper for her because, Mm -hmm. and she can't be a virgin when he arrives. So we needed Mm -hmm. to establish that this is a community of women that have been around for thousands of years and no one is chased Mm -hmm. necessarily. People might choose it for themselves. Some of the race might choose it for themselves, but there has to be love. There has to be affection. There has to be the foundations of human need. And so therefore, 100% she's had girlfriends before. I loved something that Greg wrote into that first issue was Diana seems to be going through a slutty face. Like she was with one Amazon and then another. So she is not chaste. Well, we don't even know if it was a slutty phase because it might've been like all of these ladies that she's had relationships with over 2000 Centuries. She's had more experience, not just a girlfriend, but she is a sexual being, a romantic being. Yes. And then there's the first man she meets. It's not like she turns on her sexuality, just- No, exactly. And it, it couldn't be a turn on of sexuality and it couldn't be- that she was just smitten with the first dick that arrived. It couldn't mm. be that basic. So that informed who he had to be. He had to be worthy of her. Yeah. And so we had to make him this really good guy that, and I loved that it was reflected in the Patty Jenkins version as well, that we wanted Steve to be backing her up all the time, that any time mm-hmm. she went into action, he was there. And you see that play out in the 2017 movie as well, that every time she goes into action, she turns around and he's right there behind her, like Mm -hmm. just not being shielded by her, but backing her up. And so that was nice to know that we had moved in parallel there that because our book was coming out a year before the movie came out. We didn't know what they were doing in the movie. That is such synchronicity that you all are so aligned with these stories that are moving into the culture simultaneously. I remember reading something I don't remember where, but you had been interviewed, but that you didn't know what was happening with the movie. It seemed to me that there was coordination. There was so much similarity, but not at all. No, we didn't know. It wasn't until it wasn't until we saw the movie that I remember turning to my mate who I went to the premiere with, like, this is just like the book. (laughs) And like, Patty was seeing the book as it was coming out, but she was already in the editing suite. So they had made the movie. (laughs) And it was this really interesting thing of how are we on the same page? Because we're not sharing notes. We're Mm -hmm. not sharing notes. But this is because 
Patty's understanding of the character is like Greg's and my understanding of the character because she's the same age as we are. Mm-hmm. And therefore her early influence was Linda Carter and Linda understood the character in a way that I don't think a lot of women would mm-hmm. as really soft. Oh, she's a pacifist. She's constantly trying to stop action from happening. And when she does, she's not beating the shit out of somebody. She's just throwing them around. Mm-hmm. To just take them like, out a little like bit. Like getting the kids to stop fighting. She just throws 100%. them into their corners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So th- that was key to us. I knew that I wanted the competition in the book. That's part of the history that means something to me. But we also understood that if she is during the competition, she's cheating. Yes. And we didn't want her to cheat. She had to earn her spot as an equal, as a possible equal she had to win so that was why we didn't give her her powers until she was already in man's land i loved that that's always been a problem with the history of the origin is if you go back to the marston comics all of the amazons are capable of what diana is capable of but then you get to wonder woman with the sleeping beauty origin where she has these get her powers or gifts from the gods now the tournament comes around and she's cheating So you managed to get the best of both worlds. She's still the most skilled of her island, but if she's going to fight at superhero level, she needs a power up. And so the gods show up and give her gifts. Give her the gifts, yeah. And I thought it was really lovely that Greg's representation of that was that at the end of the competition, there are three Amazons standing, that there are three who have managed to really be the top of the food chain in terms of skill and really it was the bullets and bracelets that cemented diana as the one to represent them Mm -hmm. and that the gun was a gun that steve had brought with him that was it was like here is a weapon from his people whoever's going out there needs to face whatever this is Mm -hmm. so let's go and diner is the last one standing and i I love that about her and about how greg faced that conundrum and i had early on like before we started and even though we only had a very short turnaround i had because he always says what do you want what do you what do you want to get in there and i was like look i know you think this is the most stupid idea ever but i love the invisible jet i just need it in there and he was like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. It's so <laughs> stupid. And I was like, no, I'm going to sell you on it. This is what it is. Steve Trevor arrives there in a plane. It's the same plane. They just put it back together, but they don't necessarily understand the mechanics because even though there is incredible science and technology uh, on this island, they're not a male-driven, rocket-driven, phallic-representation-driven society they're more of a nature-based science and there's a little bit of magic Mm. this island is invisible (laughs) to the outside eye so somewhere in there there is either science or magic or somewhere in the middle that has made that island invisible Mm -hmm. why don't they have access to that Mm. and they just put that plane back together they make it invisible by patching it together. Mm-hmm. And they don't need to know how to fly it. They're magic. They just send the plane back to where it came they from. They just send it just home. Return. They just tell it to go yeah. home. <laughs> Essentially. 
just, he just thought that was so silly and so beautiful. So in keeping with the story that we were telling, if we were telling a more realistic Wonder Woman story, we might not have done something so delightful. Mm-hmm. But I felt like that was really important. I also, when Steve crashes, he doesn't crash alone. He crashes with a number of other people mm-hmm. and they don't make it and he barely makes it, mm-hmm. but they heal him. And I was like, I know we can't do something crazy science like the purple healing ray but we can do something that's like the purple healing ray in that maybe there's a particular kind of crystal like a a rock on the island a particular kind of crystal they've polished the crap out of so that it can refract the sun's light into a bath full of plasma if it's like a stem cell kind of whatever science they've found important to keep themselves well and healthy for Mm -hmm. thousands of years. They're not aging, but they can still ail Mm -hmm. that they've created a mud bath (laughs) or whatever the fuck. (laughs) And just shining the light through this lens is what will heal him one Mm -hmm. way or another. And so we only get one panel of that. We don't get to describe it, but there's one panel where you can see that happening and Steve is a wreck before he goes in and he is clean as a baby when he comes out. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the the um, the female gaze, which is very much yep. like the gay gaze on, yep. on Steve Trevor and some other characters you've drawn. You have highlighted Dick Grayson, Nightwing's assets, most impressively. What we're talking about earlier, there's a criticism of Wonder Woman being sexualized. And if you look at the 90s Deodato butt floss era, it's just... Embarrassing to look at. It's a lot. But your view of Steve Trevor, he doesn't wear a lot of clothes a lot of the time. (laughs) That was definitely on purpose in that opening issue, because most of our year one takes place in the first issue. Mm -hmm. Like issue one is maybe 11 and a half months. (laughs) The rest of the story takes place in a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. if that. So what Greg had said to really solidify the importance of their meeting is that year one story is the two of them over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing his story and we're seeing her story. And it's not until the end of that first issue when he crashes onto the island that they meet. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, it was like, so we're going to show Steve in his life, show Diana in hers, how they reflect, how they mirror each other. And at one point in just like a montage of doing things, Greg had said something about the SEAL training water sports kind of thing so that we can show Diana swimming with the other Amazons. And nothing about what Greg had written was meant to be sexualized in any nature. But I was just like, these are two young, beautiful, hot people Mm -hmm. who are going to meet each other and immediately fall in love. We need to love them too. Mm -hmm. And we had already had that discussion of Diana isn't a virgin. She needs to be sexualized. And in that panel that the other girls around her are talking about, you know, who Diana might be hooking up with these days. (laughs) And there she is in the distance. She's naked. She's in the water. And I was like, I'm putting Steve Trevor right up front in his short shorts. Because when I did the Google search for what do these guys wear when they're doing their swim stuff and saw their shorts are tiny. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, that's hilarious. I'm leaning into that and put Steve Trevor front and center so that I'm constantly going backwards and forwards between them. If Steve is in the foreground, then Diana's in the background and vice versa. 
because you want to have that visual dynamic of constantly doing this between the two characters. And because I knew I wanted Diana naked, I needed to put her in the background. But Steve's wearing shorts. He's not quite naked, so I can put him in the foreground. And then after that, I said to Greg, um, I think it was in the second issue where he has been healed and he's in like a recovery balcony. <laughs> you know, it's very, <laughs> very glamorous. <laughs> but he's the only one there. And it was like, there is no way he would have clothes on because there would be absolutely no need. And Diana goes to visit him there and is completely comfortable with his nakedness, even though he doesn't expose himself. But he feels naked and she's mm -hmm. oblivious. She couldn't give a shit. That mm -hmm. felt like really important storytelling. And it was in that moment that I was like, this is the second issue that I'm getting Steve pretty close to naked. And I said to Greg, I'm going to make Steve naked in every issue. How are we going to do this? And yes. he laughed and laughed because it was like, Wonder Woman is always being accused of showing too much skin because she's in a bikini. And it's, we just equal it out. We just, mm -hmm. Steve is going to be showing as much skin as she is. And it's just going to be incidental because that's how it always happened. It was incidental because he's in a recovery hospital room. In the next issue, he's getting his checkups at the doctor because this is, he's arrived back fully healed with all of his dead mates. And he has to explain all of this to his military superiors. <laughs> how his out. appendix had grown back yeah how he's in one piece and i said i'm gonna fold his uniform neatly as it would be by a soldier next to him and he's just naked on the seat we're not seeing anything but we can see that he's naked mm -hmm. and and again it was like in the next issue greg was like and steve takes his shirt off so that he can use it as a bandage to help someone it's just all organic absolutely by design we haven't even touched on your most recent work. And as you have done so much magnificent art, your Wonder Woman is so filled with love, but Historia is next level. This is capital A art that you have created. Thank you. How did this happen? How did you do this? <laughs> and some of them, I wonder how I did it too. It came about because I remember when these black label books were being announced and one of the early announcements was Kelly Sue DeConnick and Phil Jimenez working on Historia and how it was this history of the Amazons and such and that just looked extraordinary and interesting and I was really interested to see Kelly Sue's take Phil coming back to the character because like me he is one of those artists that is deeply invested in the character and has spent quite a lot of time with her as well. So that felt incredibly organic and very exciting because this would be Phil returning after quite a long time. And the format of this Black Label Prestige line is not only practically different because the format of the release book is different, but the pages are twice the size. Mm -hmm. So you can put in so much more detail because it's going to get shrunk down still. And that felt very exciting. And a long time after that was announced, I got an email from DC saying, okay, so this is going to be three volumes, possibly six, six or nine in the long run, but certainly we're committed to three volumes. But Phil is not going to be doing every issue because it's too much. And because I'm his like, hand would fall off and his eyes would bleed, yeah. Your brain would explode. It is so much. There's so many characters. 
It's not like a Batman Black Label where it's still the same group of characters. You just have more space to be more detailed Mm. and you hope for a sophisticated story. This is all of the Amazons and all of the gods and all of the everything. And even though I didn't know the story and I hadn't yet seen much of Phil's art, I'd seen little bits and pieces that he'd shared in the early days, which were super non-spoilery. It seemed like a very interesting idea that a long-form version of the Amazon's origin was going to be told because it hadn't been done before. Every origin of the Amazons had been a shorthand to get to Diana or to get to Wonder Woman as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. But this was going to be a long-form story. And I knew from the very beginning that Diana wouldn't even be born until the end of issue three. So it was like, oh, okay, so you're really investing in this. And they were like, yes, so would you be interested in doing volume two? And I was like, actually, as tempting as that is and as terrified as I would be to follow Phil, I actually can't do it at the moment because I can't remember what I was doing at the time, but I couldn't take it on. I think I was working on Black Black Magic. I think I'd finally got back to Black Magic. Greg and I's schedule had aligned. And so I said no. And six months later, editorial came back to me and they said, okay, we've got someone working on volume two. Is there any possibility that you would be able to do volume three? And I was like, I'm now doing something else. Again, super tempted. I wish I could, but I can't. Schedule doesn't permit. And so they're like, okay, fine. And another like six months later, and the editor contacts me again and says, look, I know you're going to say no. I know, but just on the off chance, do you think you could fit us into our schedule? And I was like, well, it depends on your schedule because it was like February last year. I was like, I'm deep in this at the moment, but I can see that come August, I'm going to have some opening time. If you can wait until August, then I can do it. But if you need me to start now, I can't. And they were like, August is perfect timing. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. And that was how me being involved in the project came about. I eventually got to have a really long chat with Kelly Sue as we broke it down. She told me what was happening in Phil's. Phil's hadn't yet come out, but I had a digital copy of it. Jean had been working on volume two for a while and I think it was about 75% done. So I got to see how Jean was approaching the story and I could see how each volume of the story was very different to each other, which was in itself a little bit reassuring because Phil's style and Jean's style is so different, but also the story in each volume is so different. Phil's is very God space and epic and broad like it's all double page spreads until suddenly you meet Hippolyta in the last third to a quarter of the book Mm -hmm. suddenly we become earthbound and we are introduced to this character and her journey is set in motion then Jean Ha's uh, volume is almost entirely earthbound and it is very human following a human character as she has a very human experience of pursuing these god-created amazons and by chance ephemerally encountering a goddess and how all of that plays out and the, the turn of the story being this really human moment that mm. changes and exposes them and that made it clear that mine was going to be somewhere in the middle that it needed to fill both. It needed Mm. to go very big and very small constantly because we were 
bringing all of those elements together. There's an image in the middle of the book where everything turns and it's the, the part of the Wonder Woman lore has always included the battle between Hippolyta and Heracles. That's canon, quote unquote. And I love how feminism, this wave of feminism, the thing that I think is important about the philosophy of feminism is that it is about what the group can do when they come together. It's not ego versus ego. You have this giant Heracles who is going to, you see the size difference. This is a demigod. This is not just a big dude. This is a demigod. The Amazons are fucked. None of them can do it alone. And so with all of their differences, Mm -hmm. all of their, their complex structure, the Queens come together in the way you drew this, like this beautiful metaphor of the ants taking down the praying mantis Mm. and the Amazons. It's so brutal. It is so brutal. I had noticed the first three times I read it, that there are pieces of Heracles lying around after Mm. this battle, that he's being castrated in the center Mm -hmm. of that panel. And then the, what's happening in the art, while Hippolyta is saying, we are rendering him back unto Zeus so that he can be buried. This is a show of respect. We would not do this for the slavers. We do this out of respect for the son of Zeus. <laughs> They're loading pieces of, of Heracles onto a cart. Yeah, he's in it, four bags. In four bags. It is wicked. And brilliant and sad, but you turn the page and the next thing is a thunderstorm screaming. Yeah. The story that you told visually, her her narration does one thing. You're doing something in parallel and both of them are elevating each other during those pages. What is the impact on you? Like as you bring these these images, through you, onto the paper. What happens inside you? How does it affect you? There are certain moments in any story that are the key moments. They're doing a lot of the work. There's lots of connective tissue that holds it all together. That's what makes it a proper narrative. But there are certain moments that are the impact moments. And... To me, they're not always the action moments. Sometimes they're the really quiet moments. And you can see it in a scene. You can see it in an issue that there are always these key moments. And it's often whatever the biggest panel is. Certainly when I'm drawing, I'm always looking for what is the moment here? And I don't always want to make it the action scene because sometimes I feel like the action is incidental to what the scene is about, what is happening here isn't about the kicking and the punching. It's about the something else. Mm-hmm. And so recognizing those moments and elevating them, one of the ways that you elevate them is to give them more real estate. Mm-hmm. And for that scene in particular, I knew that this was a moment, this was a turning point because this is the first time that they're being confronted for existing mm-hmm. and that the gods are saying, absolutely not. We're sending our best and brightest goodbye kind of mm-hmm. thing. And this is their moment inspired by Hippolyta to all of them work as a unit because up until that moment, there have been these six 
goddess created tribes off doing their own thing that will sometimes mingle to do bits and pieces. And then there's the seventh tribe of Hippolytus. She's trailing behind all of these goddess created Amazons who keep saving all these slave women, mm-hmm. but then riding off into the sunset without them. Mm-hmm. And Hippolytus like, you can't just abandon us once you save us because we're going to be fucked again any mm-hmm. second now. The only way we're going to be safe is together. And so I'm going to start collecting all of these people that you save and giving them a safe space where our numbers is what will keep us together. And if you guys can just lower yourselves to train us, you won't have to keep saving us, essentially. Mm. Mm. And in that moment of Heracles arriving and Antiope not necessarily being the senior Amazon, but certainly the ballsiest, stepping out of the shadows and going, yep, okay, let's go, Heracles, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And Hippolyta just recognizing, oh, we need to do this together. He'll slaughter us one well. at a time, but together. Slaughter us, yeah, Antiope is in all of this armor that she was born in. She's born fully formed and fully armored. She's got bracelets, she's got her lasso she's got horns she's got all of the things and Hippolyta is like in rags Mm -hmm. and she's just picked up an axe and she's like let's do this (laughs) and that inspires the queens to come out and go yep okay we're all here we're all doing this and then all the queens are backed up by all of their tribes and the slaughter of Heracles was a double page spread and it read in the script that it's three panels. It's like a panel of the of all of the Amazons coming out, or all of the goddess-created Amazons, but also a lot of the seventh tribe of Hippolytus tribe surrounding Heracles, then the slaughter of Heracles, and then the metaphor of the ants destroying the praying mantis. Mm. And in advance, as soon as I read that in the script, I'm like, okay, that's a really big moment. How do I give it its due? And really mulling over the idea as I'm working towards it, because I'm doing other pages as I build myself up, a lot of regular panel, comic book panel storytelling precedes it. But how do I build to this moment? And then how do I sell this moment? (laughs) How do I make best use of these three panels, as it says in the script? I need to do something a bit more interesting than three panels, because do I do them vertically? Do I do them? And it came to me in the middle of the night. I should do it in circles because they're surrounding him and I don't want to do just a line because that's a front line rather than a surrounding. How do I surround him? Mm -hmm. And that's where it came into idea that they are surrounding him in a circle. The slaughter is happening in the circle where we zoom right into him, just absolutely getting massacred Mm -hmm. in seconds by all of these incredibly skilled warriors. And then the metaphor in the center, which can, cover the fact that he's getting castrated, even though I'm clearly indicating that he's getting castrated. And, and then in the practical sense of doing it, it's okay, how do I, how do I now execute this idea? <laughs> and I started with the middle panel and mapping out Heracles across the spread because he's so much bigger. I knew that one of the tricks would be getting the scale of him right and then all of the characters around him and how packed do I make this are people going to be able to swing their swords and axes and arrows and stuff 
if I pack it too much, but I feel like I really need to pack it. Like everyone is just getting right in there and it is their skill that prevents them hurting each other. And so I started with him. I think I added Antiope and Hippolyta because I knew I needed them at the top of the panel or I wanted them at the top of the panel. And then once I got a map of where they were, I then started drawing all the characters on the outside and filling them in, making sure that the front line of these circles was the goddess-created Amazons, Mm -hmm. and then beyond them, whatever goddess-created Amazons were left, and lots of Seventh Tribe, so that there was like a real crowd of people lining up to take their piece. And then once it came to filling that circle of the slaughter, just getting more and more characters in there and finding ways to use the height, like, Heracles is no longer standing. He's kind of on a lean as he's being taken off his feet. So towards his head, you know, he's higher up the Amazons. By his feet, he's lower down. And, you know, what is, what is everybody doing? What weapons do they have? Who has a big sword? You know, I saw that, um, I've forgotten what her name is. She's a character that's got this sort of big horned helmet on, like horns going all over the place. It says in the description that she is the biggest of the Amazons. Mm. I'm just like, she's just going to ram him with Mm -hmm. her helmet. So she's going right into the chest. Who else is around? How do I get in representations from all of the tribes? Just show them all getting their piece. Mm. And that was essentially how that came about. But it took me over a week. And I did feel a bit like a zombie at the end of it. Because drawing all of those tiny characters around the side in that sharp perspective took quite a few days in and of itself and then drawing the interior of the slaughter took quite a while and then once I'd drawn it all I then needed to paint it oh my because God. I was painting the book <laughs> but it's the painting where the depth and the texture and the real life comes into the line work because I was doing very simple line work but that was the fun wow just killed me it, but it was fun there's something about every woman doing like using what she has to face this obstacle that they're all facing together Mm. that threatens all of them. Whatever you've got, an axe, and that it's the way you described it. I wasn't thinking about the power dynamics of the God-created Amazons and then the mortal Amazons, the seventh tribe. Those are the echoes of Diana who leaves paradise, not to save women, but to empower them. Yeah. So that they can save themselves. Come down from your high horse Mm. and then you won't have to train us and you won't have you won't have to save us anymore and that's such a lesson of wonder woman not here to well i'm here to rescue you you're in trouble i'll rescue you but long term i'm here to tell you make yourself stronger work together take responsibility she's 100 kind of like after that slaughter there are two battles that take place afterwards Mm. and you may notice that the seventh tribe, they have weapons, but they don't have armor in the first one. They've accumulated some extra weapons from all the slavers that they have defeated, but they don't have armor. So they're going into battle with just their togas and their sandals and maybe a bit of armor that they've picked up along the way. But for the most part, they've just got like a sword or an axe, but they're charging in with all of these goddess created semi-super beings Mm -hmm. that are fully armored up, fully weaponed up, 
and ready for battle at any moment. And all of these human Amazons, all they've got are their slavers' bracelets. That is what distinguishes them. And in the second battle, what they're wearing is the armor of the first battle that the, of the first army that they defeated. I so, didn't notice that. Ooh. So in, in the second battle where they finally lose, mm-hmm. because they're up against more than just a army of men, they've taken the helmets from the soldiers that they defeated in the first one, and they've cut bridges into the, the plume on top so that through through a dusty battlefield, you'll be able to distinguish them in terms of their silhouette from a distance but they're wearing some of them have taken some shoulder bits some of them have taken some shin gauntlets some of them have taken like a full torso armor but most of them have taken a helmet and stuck it on their head as they go into their second battle you are blowing my mind with the level of detail and thought and consideration that went into that i didn't notice and now i i can't wait to read this again what else have i missed in there um oh i I so hope we get another three and that you draw oh, at, same. at least at least one more. I I don't really read comics, to be honest, mm. very often anymore. I don't subscribe to Wonder Woman anymore. It's boring to me at the moment. Historia is the only comic I have read really in ages. I've now read the first two issues a number of times and the third one twice that I am rereading a comic is and and being affected by it each time Mm. just hasn't happened in a while and now i'm starting to hear uh, other levels there's a heartbreak in this and the courage of the unarmored amazons i just wasn't tuning in to the vulnerability that they were coming in with the scene in the morning between battles so they've had their funereal service Mm -hmm. of sending their fallen to the well of the gods to the well of souls Mm -hmm. and the next morning when the male army is charging towards them is marching their way towards them the amazons are sitting around and having breakfast and laughing at some theater because they understand that they need to feel their humanity again and those two people performing the play they're trans actors. They're trans Amazons. Oh. Yeah, because women, it, again, it's only an, an insinuation in the script. It's there in the script, but if you know, women weren't allowed to perform theatre, well, let alone yeah. see theatre. So this is their first opportunity to see an art like a play. So they're being deeply entertained, and the two actors performing it are the reason why they know these plays, the reason why they've been able to perform these plays, the reason why Calicretis, who's the one taking the lead, Mm -hmm. it's because she got to grow up in the theatre before she... And essentially, yes, it was like, how do I represent a trans woman without the opportunity for hormones or surgery? How would a trans woman survive? And theatre is probably a safe space for the most part Mm -hmm. and you know this is how she will be this is how she can explore her femininity and of course at some point because actors are worth nothing and here is a trans actor and she's been saved from slavers because of course she'd find herself being at the mercy of assholes 
mm-hmm. and that of course she is completely welcomed into the society of the Amazons. And Hippolyta is even saying to her, you have something to live for because if we make it through this, you can teach all of us what theatre is about. We will build you a theatre and you can continue with your passion and your life, but in the space that we create for you rather than you in your little box of tricks. Mm. It's just, it's really potent and meaningful that these moments along the way speak to how big and broad this society of women really is. That adds so much texture to the appearance Mm -hmm. of Dionysus in there as well, as he's the non-binary god and a protector of women in some stories. But he was the place for, his tribe was the place for people who didn't fit, who didn't fit under the Zeus-style leadership. And so then, if you, if, now if you have this trans actor there, that connection between them. That's why Hera can go to him and say, you're responsible for this one. For Look this after one. her. With her gone, which is absolutely going to happen without your interference, mm-hmm. with her gone, that's a whole stream of worshippers absolutely annihilated. But with her supported and flourishing, you will be at their worship indefinitely. And that's, that foreshadows what I hope is going to come in a future book is the culture that the Amazons create. And it hasn't come up in this conversation, but I happen to know that you were an actor. I am an actor or was an actor. And theater, in my mind, is the pinnacle of culture. It's mm. It is absolutely my favorite art, and it's a place where humanity gets to be expressed in its fullness in theater and in dance. And so if Themyscira is established, Paradise Island is established, one of the things that makes it paradise, what she will create, what what is the character's name? Calacrates. Calacrates. What she will create is something so magnificent and yeah. that's a, an expression of Paradise Island and, a the, and theater on Paradise Island because that's what Hera can see. Yeah. That if this path goes, that culture can be transformed and transformative. The culture that she is setting up for this island, like part of the judgment, one of the things that we had to sell was the idea that the island was not a gift from the gods, but a punishment. Mm-hmm. It's a gilded cage. And in order to sell this, I think it was Kelly Sue and Phil that came up with the idea that essentially Apollo would be the warden, that it would never be nighttime. So that that the island will be in full daylight all the time. Mm-hmm. And it is Artemis saying, I want one night a month. Give mm-hmm. me one night a month. And what that will do to the culture, like the culture of being under the eye of the sun at all times, and how they deal with that. But also, what does that one night mean? What do they do that one night? (laughs) That one night is going to be really significant. I can't wait to see stuff like that. Yes. This feels like the beginning of a conversation as much as at the end of one, the book and this conversation between you and me. One thing I like to do with my guests, I have these five questions I'd like to pose. And yeah, are you game? 
Yeah, sure. Oh, Bring it up. Okay, cool. The first one is when you were growing up, what were your favorite stories, your favorite nursery rhymes, cartoons, children's books, comics, anything? Obviously Wonder Woman. Anything with a costume superhero woman was deeply interesting to me. But I also love Josie and the Pussycats. Started my girl band love. Never been into boy bands. Couldn't give a shit, but God bless me with a girl band anytime. Mm-hmm. I was really into Greek mythology and I read and reread different tellings of the Iliad in particular because it fascinates me. Uh, one of my favourite new versions, newer versions, is by a writer called Madeline Miller who wrote The Song of Achilles, which is just the most beautiful story. And then, of course, Circe that came out a couple of years later, a couple of years ago. Those are two of my favorite books in the last 20 years. Yeah. 100%. They are, yeah, because I love the retellings. There was a great version. I think it was called The Song of Troy by Colin McCullough, which is quite a decent-sized volume. And each chapter is told in first person by a different character. So you get all of these different perspectives. And one of the most hilarious perspectives is Helen. When you finally get Helen's perspective, she's such an asshole. It's so funny. (laughs) But just everyone's motivations are properly fleshed out and everyone's perspective on everyone else's motivations reveal themselves as well. It's a really brilliant read. I think that came out in the 90s. I'm going to try that down. That sounds like something I would really enjoy. It's great. It's great. The story of Troy and the Iliad, which is just one part of the story of Troy, Mm. that story, it is just such, it is such a clusterfuck. Like the stakes of that story are so high and I think it gets missed by modern eyes. Yeah. Because civilization is at risk. Anyway, and everyone is behaving in horrific ways but they all have a point of view and the actor in me is what's going on there. Why? 100%. Yeah. I like when the movie came out, I was just like, Oh, it looks beautiful, but it feels really one dimensional and certainly deeply abbreviated. Oh yeah. A war that's meant to go for 10 years and it looks like it happened in 10 days. So yeah, it's a really book that I highly recommend, but I I feel like the, the, poetic language of Madeline Miller's retellings are just transportative. If you've only read them like in traditional book form, I would also suggest getting the audible version of them because the performers uh, who read each book are perfectly cast to just send you over the moon they've just got beautiful voices i fully agree i i did both i read the text oh, you and, did. And, and the audio because I, I wanted to hear it while i was in the car and right. this and this and this it just Beautiful. it it breaks my heart every time and those performances usually i feel like i'm settling for an audiobook i think in these cases it improves it yeah same yeah. absolutely i agree next question what is something that you believe to be true that you cannot prove or that can't oh, be proven gosh. at all? Yep. I believe in something beyond. I'm not a religious person. I don't come from a religious background, so I don't have any religious discipline in place in my life. But I feel a little bit pagan. You know, I kind of like that idea of giving a spiritual 
name and respect to pretty much everything in nature because I feel like it is all related. And I, when I'm talking about magic and how I talked about magic with Greg Rucker when we were developing Black Magic, is this sense of energy and just, you know, it's that skill of being able to manipulate it and that magic is just science that we haven't discovered yet because we're so fixated on a particular point of view with science. I believe in a, in a beyond and I have a slightly ephemeral but reasonably sure idea of the shape of it kind of thing. Could you give mm -hmm. me a piece of that shape? I realize that describing your entire cosmology might be a tall order, but is there something that's... I subscribe to that thing of we are celestial beings having a human experience, mm -hmm. that we are all, that everything in the universe is of the universe. And so we are all connected. So I don't, I know it, it informs my politics, obviously, because I feel like we're all very symbiotic and of a one. You see it play out now that we have social media that's teaching us about the, the emotional complexity of animals and this, that, and the other. It's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> we are all related. And I feel like if there is, you know, intelligent life on other planets, which I feel is kind of inevitable, you know, I'm not a big science space junkie, but I feel like it's inevitable that those same instincts that make us human are universal mm. because you see it in animals you see it in everything there there are instincts that are, protect us but there are also instincts that bind us and they are the things that we're all made of so I feel very strongly about that so yes my spiritual side takes the form of a witchiness but again I'm not feeling dogmatic about a pagan slash wiccan slash whatever practice I feel it's very organic I can feel as spiritual being in a church, which is constructed for a spiritual feeling as I can standing in my garden. Beautifully said. Yeah. But there's something more. What that looks like is not, I don't know. It's There, there are a lot of ways it can, there doesn't need to be a dogma attached to it. Yeah. You just have to tap in. You just mm -hmm. got to feel it. I feel like it's that thing of what your instincts are, being able to trust your instincts. It's all the same thing. It's just being able to feel like you can understand the ebb and flow of energy and here are some good years here are some bad years that everything is cyclical that i never feel worried when things are shit because it's okay so i'm going through a shit phase mm. if everything's really great i'm like this is great let's enjoy it because it won't necessarily be this great in a year it doesn't mean it'll be shit in a year but you know everything is it's waves of whatever <laughs> thank you and this next question builds on that have you ever encountered a phenomenon that you just cannot explain and whether you have or haven't, how has that affected your worldview? Look, without getting the secret about things, because I find that kind of commercialization of a theory a bit gross. Yeah. I do feel like, you know, you, you're really capable of manifesting. And I believe that because I have done it myself. I have manifested in my own life the things that are important to me. And... I, obviously reality and context and circumstances that are beyond your control do limit your sense of an ability to do a thing and they can 100% restrict you from the practical side of being able to do a thing. But given enough time and enough concentration on a thing, 
I've managed to manifest pretty much what I hoped my life would be. Mm. And sometimes it's just spinning enough plates that you're already got some sense of momentum and some sense of direction so that when opportunity arrives, when a a door is open or a a piece of luck happens your way, you're ready for it Mm -hmm. because you're already actively working towards a thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is where we're best serving ourselves and best serving each other is when we have a clear idea of where we want to go and who we want to be and then doing what we can to manifest it because I do think we're all capable of manifesting something big requires a lot of you. I I completely agree with that assessment. And I I just want to highlight what you said at the beginning because I think the secret and that whole law of attraction capitalist version of this has created some really good reasons to turn away from that. Without saying it, you started, you acknowledged privilege and things that make it easier or harder. 100%. But all of that doesn't actually make it less true. And there's another important piece. You're not sitting there just journaling about it. You're actually, you are moving with all of yourself in that direction. It takes, it's not just words, it's everything. And then the cosmos has the opportunity to meet you halfway. So you notice that. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I feel quite strongly about that. And I understand that sometimes the barriers that people have are just mental health Mm -hmm. and understanding how sophisticated and complex and the full spectrum of fucking everything. Everything is a goddamn spectrum. And I believe that, that I know that for me, I've been very lucky to have fallen into the eternally optimistic, reasonably self-assured headspace. Mm -hmm. So that has given me a certain advantage in being able to feel like I can manifest a thing, but it wasn't really until I was in my late twenties and early thirties that I felt confident that I could up until then. I just felt suspicious that I might be able to (laughs) last question. When in your life, have you experienced ecstasy? Oh, gosh. Well, being on ecstasy in the 90s. <laughs> a couple of times. I love when people give that answer. Yeah. Good memories. <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> Felt like an angel. It was great. But beyond that, I feel it in my bones when I'm with my family. My family is a very complex organism and I know not everyone in my family feels the same way. Relationships are complicated. But as the youngest, I feel very grounded and present around my family. Being on stage, there's something a little bit, you're performing magic because you're creating a magic space and you're You're making your audience participate and believe in the space that you're creating. And that to me feels like a real, not a magic trick, but actually conjuring magic. There's an energy, you change the energy and you sweep an audience along with you who just five minutes ago were looking at their watch or doing something outside, but suddenly they're in this magic space. It's a ritual, Uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's somewhere where I felt ecstasy. And I think I'm someone who in really quiet little moments, like just lying in bed in the morning with my husband and my cat and just that bliss of just 
calm and comfort, but there's something in that, that there's no stakes at play. That is an ecstasy that I feel really conscious of. And pretty much any time I see a full moon. <laughs> I can be going about my night and it's, oh my God, there's a full moon. And it really does overwhelm me. It's, it feels deeply magical to catch it in that moment because I don't super pay attention to the, I'm just noticing that I actually have a moon chart behind me, but I like it because of the aesthetic and because every now and then I do want to know. But for the most part, I don't actually pay that much attention to it. I just like to feel the vibe of it. But every now and then you just catch it. Oh my God, there you are. And it's that, that to me is a little, little bit, a little bit special. That's today's episode. Thank you again to Nicholas Scott for calling in all the way from Australia. And a huge thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed the podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes, more information, and mythic resources, visit us on the web at mythicpodcast.com. Until next time, journey on.